This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my bi-weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. As promised, the topic for this week is part two of my three-part series on the roadmap to repentance in the 21st century. The repentance block, after all, is ticking. 5783 arrives in a little over four weeks. And with it come the ten days of repentance, the Aseret Yemei By now, we should be heavily into taking stock of how we lived our lives in the past year and deciding on what parts of our character and what aspects of our behavior need correcting. Because, as Jews, the Torah decides for us what's right and what's wrong, what's moral and what's ethical, we need to base our soul-searching on the Torah's standards of morality and ethics. As I said in part one, fortunately for us, Torah readings that lead up to Yom Kippur provide us with the very information we need to do that stock-taking in condensed, easily accessible form. They provide us with that roadmap to repentance I want to focus this week on some of our responsibilities to the world around us, and specifically to the poor and disadvantaged in our society, because although we may not realize it in discussing how we're to behave and what our character should be, our responsibilities to the world around us have a huge role to play when viewed through the Torah's lens. In focusing on this, I'll be concentrating on two Torah verses in particular, one that appeared in last week's reading, and one that appears this week. I'm concentrating on our responsibilities to the poor and the disadvantaged, and on those verses especially, because the issues of poverty and hunger in America have grown ever more important due to the COVID-19 pandemic and to the economic devastation it brought with it, including the high inflation rate we're currently living under. That inflation rate is at just over 8.5% right now, a slight decrease, fortunately, from the near-record high rate of just over 9% a month ago. According to the Urban Institute, when all the numbers are in for last year, the overall poverty rate for 2021 will have been around 13.7%. That translates into nearly 45.5 million people here in the United States who last year lived below the poverty threshold. One in every seven Americans living below the poverty threshold in 2021. It's not likely to be very much better this year, if it is in fact any better. The Urban Institute also projects that about 4.4% of all people in 2021 were in deep poverty, meaning that their resources were less than half of the poverty threshold. That's over 14.6 million people in deep poverty. Then there are the children. The monthly child poverty rate was 12.1% in December 2021, which is bad enough by every standard but only got worse just one month later, 
on January 1, 2022, when it jumped to 17%, meaning there were 3.7 million more children living in poverty in just one day. The reason for that 4.9% bump was the expiration at the end of 2021 of the monthly child tax credit payments that had been going out until then. Congress has yet to remove the tax credit payments. Hunger and poverty go hand in hand. If you don't have enough money to buy healthy, nutritious food regularly, you're going to go hungry. And that isn't just a problem for the people who live at or below the poverty line. Two-thirds of those who are considered food insecure actually live above the poverty line. And that's bad news for them in many ways because they're ineligible for the kinds of government programs that are available to the people who live at or below the poverty line. So, although they don't have enough money for basic necessities, ample and nutritious food especially, they're on their own in getting help. There are organizations to help those people, but those organizations depend on our donations, making that problem our problem. And that's a problem in itself because there are even more people today struggling to make ends meet because inflation has only made things worse for all of us in the economic middle. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, food prices were 10.4% higher in June than they were the year before in June 2021. An estimated 38. 3 million people were food insecure in 2020. And that number is certain to rise when all the 2021 data are in. As it is, that's more than one in every 10 Americans living in hunger here in 2020. Within that, 38.3 million people are 12 million children who probably don't know where their next meal is coming from or even when or whether it's going to come. That brings me to those verses. First, though, I need to explain something. The Torah is a unified whole, not a bunch of verses strung together. One verse, for example, tells us we're forbidden to do any work on Shabbat, while another verse, far removed from that one, tells us we're to live by the law, which also means we're not to die because of the law. Because all of the Torah's laws are interdependent, there's no one without the other. What we're being told in those two verses is that the laws of Shabbat must stand aside when there's even a potential danger to life. That's important to know if we're to understand the true meaning of the two verses in question. You may not understand the Hebrew, but I'll read it before giving the translation because I want you to hear the three verbs that are operative. Here's how the first verse reads in part in Hebrew. The achalta, visavata, uverachta, et Adonai Elohecha. Translated, this means, quote, When you have eaten and are satisfied, then you shall bless the Lord your God, unquote. The three verbs are achalta, savata, Eat, satisfy, bless. 
This is the commandment requiring us to thank God for something we've just eaten, and especially to recite the Birkat Hamazon, grace after meals, if we consume bread during that meal. The commandment uses three verbs to make its point, which is one verb too many, because all it needed to say was the achalta uverachta, when you have eaten, then you shall bless. We ate something, and we need to thank God for it, and that's it. Since the Torah doesn't waste words, that superfluous word, visabata, meaning, and you are satisfied, has to have a reason for being. We find that reason in that second verse I mentioned, the one in this week's parsha, Re'ed. That verse obligates us to bring a special tithe every third year that will be used to provide ample, nourishing food for the underprivileged and the disadvantaged, so that they won't ever grow hungry. As the verse puts it, they, quote, shall come and eat and be satisfied, so that the Lord your God may bless you. The achlu, the sabeu, the ma'an yivarechicha, Same verbs, eat, satisfy, bless, are used in this verse, just as they were used in that first verse. And they're used in exactly the same order. It's the Torah's way here of telling us that this week's verse requires the verse from last week to be operative. There's no one without the other. There's a difference between the two verses, of course, but it's in that difference that we find the link between the two. This week, it's not we who eat and are satisfied, but the poor and the disadvantaged who do so. And rather than us blessing God in that first verse, now it's God who blesses us. But that raises a question. Why would God bless us for doing what we're supposed to do in the first place? The answer is because feeding the hungry is not our job in the first place. It's God's job. Over and again in the Torah, including last week and this week, the Torah makes clear that taking care of the less fortunate is God's job. Quote, For the Lord your God upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow and befriends the stranger, providing them with food and clothing. Unquote. By linking the two verses together, we're told how God goes about doing that job. God does it through us. We're God's agents. God blesses us for doing God's work. In a sense, God blesses us for being God. There's a principle of halacha, of Jewish law, that states that a person's agent is as himself or herself. For example, say we're called up to the Torah for an aliyah. The law requires us to recite the blessings before and after that portion is read, but it also requires us to do the reading and to do it with the proper musical notes. Most of us can't do that, so there's someone who does the reading for us. That person is our agent. He or she is us for that aliyah. That principle applies here as well. God keeps the promises God made to the poor, but God keeps those promises by making us God's agents. 
there's another aspect to this. In last week's Torah portion, we're told that we must, quote, walk in all God's ways, unquote. Understand what that's saying. Because God, quote, upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow and befriends the stranger providing food and clothing, unquote. So must we do that for the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and by extension, anyone else who's disadvantaged. Our sages of blessed memory put it this way, quote, Just as God is compassionate and merciful, so too should we be compassionate and merciful, unquote. That's actually another way of saying that we're God's ages. And this week's portion builds on that when it says, quote, Be careful to heed all these commandments, doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God, unquote. Doing what's good and right in God's sight means, in part, fulfilling our role as God's agents. It means more than that, as I'll explain in the third part of this series. Anyway, now we begin to understand what satisfied really means. It has nothing to do with having enjoyed our meal. It has everything to do with satisfying the requirement inherent in these two verses. Unless we've met God's responsibility to feed the food insecure before we sit down to our own meal, we can eat all we want, but in no way have we satisfied the obligation God imposed on us. And if we're not satisfied in this way, what right do we have to recite the grace after meals, the Birkat Amazon? Consider what we say about God in the first paragraph of the grace after meals. Quote, God feeds the entire world with grace, with kindness, and with mercy. God gives food to all flesh, for it is God who feeds and sustains all, and benefits all. And it is God who prepares food for all God's creatures that God created. Praised are you, Lord, who feeds all. How can we say those words if they're not true? And how can those words be true? unless we accept God's agency and feed those who have no fruit of their own. To say those words when we've done nothing to make them true is to commit a form of perjury. And mind you, feeding the poor isn't enough. It doesn't say, and they shall eat. It says, and they shall eat and be satisfied, which in the case of societies disadvantaged means that they've had a sufficiently filling, nutritious meal. The food we give them must be wholesome, nutritious, and satisfying in every way. Only then have we fulfilled God's agency. Only then are we privileged to recite grace after meals. In America, at least, we could always get away with it by saying that we pay taxes. After all, our taxes are being used, at least in a very small part, to feed the poor. Federal government spends only about 11% of its budget on domestic programs of all kinds that assist low-income individuals. Food programs are only a part of that 11%. While paying taxes then may fulfill the letter of the Torah's law, it doesn't come close to fulfilling its spirit. In any case, it's no longer true if it ever was, despite the government's best efforts. How could it be true if one out of every ten Americans is food insecure? Government can't do this on its own. We need to do our part. And so this is one thing the roadmap 
for repentance in the 21st century is telling us. Yes, we're required to recite the grace after meals, but we're also required to first earn the right to recite the grace after meals. And unless we've earned that right, we perjure ourselves and make God a liar as well when we recite the grace after meals. Does that mean that we don't have to recite the grace after meals if we don't properly provide for the poor before we eat? Of course not. Saying grace, benching in Yiddish, is not optional. It's a requirement. But that also means that neither is providing for the poor optional. There's no one without the other. Maimonides, the Rambam, teaches us this lesson through another mitzvah, that of Kashrut. He tells us that unless we have a burning desire to eat forbidden foods, then we're not really keeping kosher by not eating. Rambam obviously isn't totally serious in saying that, of course, because to follow what he suggests means sometimes eating non-kosher foods in order to develop tastes that we then studiously avoid. Rambam suggests no such thing. Rather, he's saying that to really keep kosher, we have to understand what we're doing. And more important, we have to understand why we're doing it. Just to perform a mitzvah, a commandment, without understanding why we're commanded to do it, is to do something for no reason at all, or for the wrong reason altogether, and that accomplishes nothing. We must do what we are commanded to do. We must do the mitzvot. But we also must understand why we're supposed to do them. Because if we understand why, we're making a conscious choice to perform the commandments. As the Talmud teaches us, performing mitzvot requires conscious intent. There are many ways to fulfill this particular mitzvah. You can donate to our local Jewish family services if there is one in our area, and it has a Meals on Wheels program. And perhaps, if we have the time, we can also help deliver those meals. Nationally, we can make monthly or once-a-year donations to the Jewish organization Zon, a Jewish response to hunger, or to the secular organization Feeding America. You can also help those living in food insecurity in Israel, and there are many of them, by the way, by donating to American friends of Mayor Panim, among other people. If we have the time, we can volunteer at a food bank or a soup kitchen, and we can bring unexpired and unopened food that we don't need to a local food bank. It's estimated that about 40% of food produced here in the United States is wasted and ends up in our landfills. Not only is that a crime in a moral sense, it actually violates a Torah law I'll be discussing next time, God willing, about not destroying anything of value to anyone or anything, animate or inanimate. Taking the unopened food we don't need to a local food bank would have a big impact on that kind of inexcusable wastefulness. Whenever we're at the supermarket and the option is available at the checkout counters, you can also fulfill this mitzvah, at least in part, by buying one of those $3 or $5 food for the needy coupons they sell. One upscale supermarket in my area doesn't sell coupons. It sells bags of groceries to be distributed in bulk. That's an even better option if it's available. 
If supermarkets in your area don't offer such honors, talk to the manager or write to the store's parent company. If we do any of these things, we'll not only have improved our own lives by checking off one box on our roadmap, but we'll also be improving many other lives at the same time. There are other boxes that need checking as well. Since we've been dealing with the plight of the disadvantaged, I'll stick to that theme for now. One of the things we read last week is this, quote, Remember that it is the Lord your God who gives you the power to get wealth, unquote. The point of that statement is that those of us who have the means we need to live by need to understand that we have it because God gave it to us. And we need to understand that God gave it to us, in part, so that we can act as God's agents in a variety of areas, not just in providing food to the needy. For example, Moses says on God's behalf that, quote, There shall be no needy among you, unquote. Then he adds, quote, If only you heed the Lord your God and take care to keep all these mitzvot that I command you, unquote. On its face, that's a strange statement, but it only gets stranger in the verses that follow. Quote, If, however, there is a needy person among you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against those among you who are needy. Rather, you must open your hand and lend them whatever is sufficient to meet their need. Give readily and have no regrets when you do so for there will never cease to be needy ones in your land, which is why I command you, open your heart to the poor and needy kin in your land, unquote. First it says that there shall be no needy among you, and then it says if there are, we need to help them, because there will always be needy ones among us. This would make no sense if it wasn't for that extra phrase, quote, if only you heed the Lord your God and take care to keep all these misvote that I command you with on this day, unquote. If we do what we're supposed to do, what God commands us to do, then there will still be people in need, of course, but we'll be there to help them obtain the basic necessities of life, including nutritious food as well as clothing, shelter, and so forth. The plight of the poor and the disadvantaged is a major concern of ours because it's a major theme throughout these Torah portions that make up our roadmap. For the record, it doesn't matter who that poor or disadvantaged person is. Mitzvah after mitzvah, commandment after commandment, stresses that the Torah's concern includes everyone in need, whether that person is a relative of ours, or a fellow citizen, or a stranger who's living among us. Here are some other of those laws in our roadmap. When we hire a poor and needy day laborer, for example, we're required to pay that person on that day, even before the sun sets. Quote, for they are poor and they depend on it, unquote. Meaning, you depend on that income. It also means we can't say to that person, do this work for me now and I'll send you a check next week. By extension, this also means that we must pay all the people we employ in a timely fashion. Because the economy of ancient Israel was agriculturally based, some of the laws we're given here are couched in agricultural terms, but 
they apply generally. Several commandments, for example, forbid farmers from stripping their fields bare of the grain, fruits, and or vegetables that they grow. Some of that produce must remain in the field for the poor and disadvantaged to collect. In preparing for the high holy days, we need to consider ways to give these laws practical application in our non-agricultural world today. Other laws in these Torah portions deal with loans we might make to someone in need and the pledges we take to secure those loans. The item pledged must not be something on which the person in need depends for his or her livelihood. We mustn't take a handyman's tools, for example, or a freelance writer's laptop, typewriter, they're still using it. We also may not enter the person's home to obtain the pledged item, which would expose us to how that person lives. There's no need to embarrass that person any more than he or she is already embarrassed, and so the Torah forbids us from entering their homes. For us today, that translates into, at all times, when we interact with those in need, we must treat them with respect and allow them their dignity. This law, by the way, is also the Torah's way of guaranteeing everyone the right to privacy. That's for another discussion. Often in the ancient world, the item being pledged was a piece of clothing, and it almost certainly would have been the best piece of clothing that needy person owned. In those days, it very likely was also the warmest piece of clothing he or she had, therefore one that he or she would sleep in on a cold night. While we are allowed to take that garment in pledge, we're also required to return it to that person each day before the sun sets. And we must bring that pledge to him or her. We're not allowed to make that person come to us. The next morning, we must stand outside while the pledge is brought out to us. There's so much more to discuss regarding this roadmap to repentance in the 21st century, and God willing, we'll get to at least some of it in part three. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for that next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org www.shammai.org and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. The current column deals with the disgraceful behavior of the ritually rigid towards non-Orthodox services and women's prayer groups at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Keep taking all COVID-19 precautions, including wearing N95 masks in public, no matter who tells you otherwise. And above all, stay safe.